Howdy, folks. Today, we are going to talk about 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. We have, in our context since we were in chapter 2, been talking about conduct, conducting oneself in a manner that's pleasing to God, in conditions that don't make that too easy, like under the authority of government or the slave to the master, Jesus being an example of one suffering without threatening. And then we talked about the Christian woman who is married to a non-Christian man who will not be one with the word, but by the conduct of the wife, she is to try to teach him. We talked about the husband. Uh, after that, now we're going to be talking about relating to one another in a brotherly way, how brothers and sisters in Christ ought to relate one to another. So let's get into our study. Jesus was asked what the great commandment was in the law. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. One of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him, saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, when you bring up to a Jew who understood the law of Moses, loving thy neighbor, what they hear is like the wording in Leviticus 19.18, where it says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Thy neighbor, to a Jew under the law of Moses, would have been those among the children of Israel. When we come to the New Testament, the love thy neighbor instruction becomes broader. In Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and following, all the way down to verse 37, a lawyer stood up tempting him, that is tempting Jesus, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He says, What is written in the law? How readest thou? He answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, thy neighbor is thyself. And he said to him, Thou hast answered right this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. By chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. Likewise, a Levite, who was at that place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, gave to the host, saying unto him, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor on him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus to him, Go and do thou likewise. So you see, Jesus broadens that instruction. He's a Samaritan, which was looked down upon. A Samaritan was looked down upon by the Jews. And there's history there that we don't necessarily have all the time to get into other than just to point out that Samaria was the capital city of divided Israel 
under the old law and was taken into Assyrian captivity. You go and you read 2 Kings chapter 17 and 18, and you can see that. So the Samaritans were looked down upon. When, when this man, therefore, is used as an example, it's not the example a Jew would think of, right? Uh, in, in John 4, when Jesus comes to a woman of Samaria, John 4 and verse 9 uh, she says, how is it that thou being a Jew ashes drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So this Samaritan is used as an example to show it's not just your brethren, but anybody to whom mercy is needed, you ought to love them as thyself, being the principle. So instead of love thy neighbor being as it was under the old law, there is a new instruction when you come into the New Testament that specifies brethren. In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus is talking to the disciples, to his apostles. He says, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Now, you caught at the beginning he said, a new commandment I give unto you. That new commandment, that indication of we are brotherly, that fraternal type of love, this is a commandment that shows that you're a Christian. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, we know that if we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whoso hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shut up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth love God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So the action of brotherly love, shown by what you do is so significant that you are spiritually dead if you don't love your brethren. You're a murderer if you don't love your brethren. And the very next chapter in 1 John, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? This commandment we have in him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. Years ago, we had a, a young man named Gary, and he had obeyed the gospel, and some of it was a little suspect. Uh, Gary at the time was living with a relative who was a member of the congregation, and he had just gotten out of some trouble, and over the course of time, uh, studied with myself and my brother La Rosa down here, and, and we talked to him, and it, not just Gary, but another person too, and talked to other people, et cetera, et cetera. And he, at one point in time, decided he wanted to obey the gospel. So he was, among other things, immersed into, uh, immersed in water into Christ. Well, you know, we questioned him hard, wanted to make sure you're not just doing this for the sake of your loved one, of your family member, so that you can live with them, right? Because that's She's not requiring that of you. This is between you and God. Your relationship is between you and God. Make a long story short, he ended up doing some things to her that were very ungodly. 
and, and some things even in which people of the world might frown upon. So I was talking to him about some of the things that he did, and I told him that he needed to repent and that he needed to, if he had not originally, obey the gospel properly uh, because I didn't see the love of God in him. And he said, you cannot look at me and tell me I don't love God. You don't know what's going on in my heart. I said, I know for a fact that you don't love God. And I know that because of 1 John 4, 20 and 21, that folks we just read. If a man says he loves God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. You can't love God if you don't love your brethren. This is a huge point as we enter into our text today. Our relationship with God is very much, very, very much tied to our relationship with our brethren. It is extremely unfortunate that there are people that profess to be Christians and their relationship with their brethren is limited to the times saints assemble. And for many, even less than that because they don't assemble as they ought to with the saints. This is a huge point. So when we look at 1 Peter 3, 8, 9, it says, Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for error, but contrawise blessing, knowing that you are thereto called, that you should inherit a blessing. Notice, this doesn't say be of all mind, have compassion on one another, etc. on the first day of the week or in the assembly or as a congregation. This is brotherly relations. And our relationships need to exist outside of the time the saints assemble on the first day of the week. With that in mind, let's break it down. Be ye all of one mind. This is an instruction seen throughout various New Testament scriptures. One very clear one is in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that y'all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. We are to be like-minded towards one another and in general. And Romans 12, 16 says, Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own eyes. And then in Philippians 2 and verse 2, Fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being one accord, one mind. That's clear, right? Unfortunately, when those scriptures get brought up, and I've had this discussion with people over the years many, many, many times uh, that profess to be Christians, and yet they're among people that they call their brethren, and they don't have things in common. And by things in common, I'm not talking about their favorite sports team or whether or not they like a certain type of food. I'm talking about they don't have service to God in common. And they practice the uh, misnomer of unity and diversity. Folks, the Bible teaches that we are to think alike. And that is possible, not by agreeing to disagree, but by agreeing to walk according to the same standard. In Philippians 3.16, nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind 
the same thing. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us, how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. In 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His son cleanses us from all sin. You can see in Philippians 3, 16, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2, and 1 John 1, 3 through 7, how we are like-minded. Walk by the same rule. Obey the commandments that are given throughout the New Testament that have applications to us today. Walk in the light as God is in the light. That is having no darkness in us at all. Being able to accomplish that by thinking the way that our Savior thinks. Well, how is that possible? How, how do I know what my Savior thinks? You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but just write down verses 1 through 16 if you're taking notes and go back and read it. Or, hey, you know what? You listen to a podcast. You know what's wonderful about listening to this? You can hit pause, right? And you can go and read the whole chapter if you're not familiar with it. On well, this chapter, Paul talked about how he didn't come to them in excellency of speech, that his speech and preaching was not with enticing words of man wisdom. He wanted their faith to stand in the wisdom of God. Then he talks about how he was moved by the Spirit to speak uh, and how that carnal-minded, natural man doesn't receive the things that are the spirits of God, but he that spiritual judgeth all things. I've got through all that to tell you this. Verse 16 says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Contextually, you have the mind of Christ through the word, okay? So think like Christ thinks. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8 teaches this. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robber to be equal to God, but made himself no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the death of the cross. If you will listen to that, right? Listen to that. Let this mind be in you. Our format of thinking needs to come from the Lord. And 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2 shows us an action. For as much then as Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm, your like, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. How invested are you? How invested are you? Are you invested enough to have that same mind, that same form of understanding, of intent, of thinking, that Jesus had? That is what the scriptures require of us as Christians. And when we accomplish that, then we think alike. The only things we are going to disagree upon 
are the things that do not matter to God. And there's even a qualifier with that. Matters of authorized liberty. You can eat food that I might not like. I can eat food that you may not like. That even extends in the context of Romans 14, 1 through 15, 9 to foods that you might think are wrong to eat for you, but you have no right to extend that to me. We can agree to disagree on those authorized liberties, things that God said we have freedom to decide for ourselves. The qualifier is this in Romans 14, 1 through 3, him that is weak in the faith receive you, but not to doubtful disputations. So doubtful isn't a very difficult uh, word. Uh, it's the idea of, of people that are reasoning things, deliberating themselves, things that cause doubt. And disputations, it just means discerning or judging. So don't allow doubts to enter in to where there's these types of discussions and discerning about things that don't matter. He goes on to say, in Romans 14, 2 and 3, For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Well, the Bible, the New Testament specifically, I should say, because the Old Testament had restrictions on the Jews what they could eat. The New Covenant says that we can eat you know, any meat that we want, any food that we want, with thanksgiving, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. So that's the truth. Verse 3 says in Romans 14, let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. So we can agree to disagree in these areas of liberty as long as it doesn't bring about doubtful disputations. That's the area where we can disagree. But even in that disagreement, we're still walking according to the scriptures because we have seen that there's authority for you to look at this one way and me to look at it another. Same thing if you continue reading in Romans 14 about a person who esteems one day above another, Romans 14 and verse 5, uh, that as long as you're fully persuaded in your own mind, you're not trying to persuade me, but you're fully persuaded in your own mind. Somebody may say, I don't think I should celebrate birthdays because dot, 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 whatever argumentation uh, that they think they have. Fine, you cannot celebrate birthdays, but you can't look at your brothers or sisters in Christ who may celebrate their birthdays and say that, hey, you're erring because I've decided this or that. No, as long as they're fully persuaded in their own mind, as long as they're not doing so with doubts, because if you continue to read in Romans 14 down to verse 23, he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. See, look, even in matters of authorized liberties, the standard is still the word of God. You have to have faith that your conduct is pleasing the Lord. That faith, since you're in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we are united even in disagreement and that you've got the right to look at this one way. I have the right from God to look at it another. There are people that take Romans 14 way beyond the boundaries that the text permits. And those people are false brethren, false teachers. Like-mindedness, even in areas whereby we may practice different things, comes down to understanding wherein we have authority from the Lord to operate differently in these areas. 
So finally, be of one mind. Having compassion one of another is the next statement that we're going to talk about. Compassion or sympathy for each other. Both Old and New Testament teaches these principles, right? Zechariah 7 and verse 9, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. This would be whatever one's going through. In Romans 12, 15, Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. In 1 Corinthians 12, 26, uh, the context here is spiritual gifts and the usage of them among the saints and those that are are weak, being held uh, in high regard along with those that are strong. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. So you're in a body that the spiritual body of Christ being likened unto the physical human body, that there are members of your physical body that you may think are less honorable than others. Maybe you don't value your big toe until you figure out what it's like not to have a big toe, whatever the case may be. You may think that part of my body doesn't matter. Lord's pointing out that those parts of your body that use that seem less honorable, talking about members of the congregation, bestow more honor upon them. Within that, rejoice with each other. Weep with each other. Have the ability to show sympathy for one another. Let me give you an example. In Philippians chapter 2, when Paul writes this epistle, he's in prison. He says in verses 25 through chapter 3 and verse 1, Yet I suppose it necessary to send in you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger, that he ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation. Because for the work of Christ he was nigh to death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. Chapter 3 and verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write these things to you to indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. So look, look at this example. Paul cares very highly about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus cares very highly about Paul. And the brethren in Philippi from the congregation that Epaphroditus came is worried about him. And Paul wants them not to worry. It's sympathy all the way around, a circle of sympathy. This is how we ought to be as brethren. And we're able to be of one mind and have compassion one another because we love as brethren. Not neighborly love, not parental type of love, not a spousal type of love, but love as brethren. The saints in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10, to whom it, this was written, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I run unto you, for yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed you do it toward all the brethren which are in Macedonia, but we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. 
So brotherly love is something that is obtainable. It's able to be practiced and you continue to grow in brotherly love, something that you can practice more and more. And, you know, when you look at the the practice of growth, I'll give you a little note you can write down if you're taking notes, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Uh, one of the things that Peter writes there after he talks about you know, growing in diligence and faith and virtue and knowledge and temperance and patience, meaning endurance and godliness. He talks about growing in brotherly kindness, and that is fraternal affection, brotherly love, love of the brethren. The Greek word Philadelphia uh, is where that word comes from. The same thing that was read there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9. And we see it in other scriptures like Hebrews 13, 1. Let brotherly love continue. Or something we talked about in the first chapter of 1 Peter, verse 22. See if you have purified yourselves in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another pure heart fervently. So, hey, brotherly love needs to continue. It needs to grow. You need to abound in it more and more. Like we talked about in our introduction about the new commandment that Jesus gave in John 13, 34, and 35. And it is love one another as I have loved you. And this, you know, it's not a sign outside of where saints assemble that ultimately identifies the true body of Christ it's the way we relate one to another. What people see in us as Christians. So from that, and these things tie together, being unified in the mind, being able to have compassion, being able to love, from that being pitiful towards the brethren. And, and you know, I, I want you to think about it kind of in the background of your mind how love and pity and being courteous and not repaying evil for evil are all things that contribute to peace. You know, this is how a congregation is able to exhibit peace. We know 1 Corinthians 14, says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, well, when brethren love each other and they're pitiful towards one another, when they're kind towards one another, when they're friendly, when they do not seek vengeance, that is an atmosphere of peace. So let's talk about the breakdown of it. Pitiful, being able to show pity towards our brethren, especially as it relates to being able to forgive one another. Ephesians 4.32, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now, what we know in the Bible is, and, and I, I hate that sometimes... You've got to make these clarifications, but I do understand the multitudes of false doctrines out there on the subject matter of forgiveness. And there are people that do not adhere to what the scripture just said, right? Forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Well, how does God for Christ's sake forgive us? It's conditional. 
you know, when people were initially taught the gospel, Acts 3.19, for example, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. It is conditional. In 1 Peter chapter, or not 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm sorry, in 1 John chapter 1, instead of denying that someone has sinned, instead of not instead of saying we have no sin, 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are conditions, repentance and confession of those sins for us to be given uh, forgiveness. So the standard is forgive as Christ forgave. Uh, repentance is part of that. In fact, in Luke 17, 3 and 4, it says, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, seven times in a day, turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. The condition is repentance. So I have given you that because I'm about to take your attention to Matthew chapter 18. And in this chapter, all of that is not spelled out in those precise terms. And we want to make sure that we take into consideration all of the scriptures. So Matthew chapter 18, there came the disciples to Jesus and they want to know who's greatest in the kingdom. So Jesus calls a little child and sits him in the midst. And he says, except you be converted and become as little children, you should not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to talk about uh, offenses that are going to come. He says in verse 7, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. And then he tells them, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It's better for thee to enter into life halt or maim rather than having two hands or feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And he says, if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast from thee. It's better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven, for the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. So offenses are going to come, but woe to him who causes those offenses. Remove anything that's going to have you cause those offenses. Don't offend one of these little ones. Even the angels are watching. So our behavior is being witnessed, right? Then he goes on to talk in 12 through 14. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth in the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I send you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So repentance is introduced here after the discussion, uh, or not the discussion, but the teaching about offenses. He then goes on to address what happens, and here, here's where our subject matter of pity among the brethren comes in. In Matthew 18, 15, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone, and if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Now, I just want to stop here for a moment, okay? There's all kinds of sub-things that you ought to consider in Matthew 18, 15. So this is a situation where a brother may transgress against another brother. This isn't 
the act of adultery or theft or murder or any of those things. This is a sin against me, okay? You, you, you've done something against me uh, privately. Uh, how I know we've had discussions here in El Paso uh, up, on this, and sometimes people, I, I don't know, always grab this text the way that they ought to. You know, in the scriptures, it teaches us that we're not to cause offenses that cause our brother to stumble or be offended or make weak. Romans 14, 21, it is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine or anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. That's a command of God, okay? Well, what happens if I do something that is an error against my brethren? That isn't necessarily a transgression of the law, per se, but it's a wounding of my brother's weak conscience. Well, if my brother comes to me and says, you did this to me, remember, we're talking about offenses, right, that are made. That's the context when we back up and talk about it. You know, whoso offend one of these little ones, that's, that's our context, those that have been converted. There's other things that have to be considered too. This offense, am I in a position to address my brother? You know, earlier in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with judgment you judge, you should be judged, and with measure you meet, should be measured to you again. Why beholdest thou the mote that's in thy brother's eye, and considerest not the beam that's in thine own eye? I will not say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, the beam is thine own. Thou hypocrite, first. Cast out the beam of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote of thy brother's eye. Before I'm going to be involved in addressing an error among my brethren, I need to clean up my act first. So, and, and we could talk about other things, but I'm just giving you that there's things here in what we're looking at that are addressed in other contexts that play part in this that Jesus doesn't bring up in the immediate context as we have it recorded for us. So if thy brother trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault. And if he hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Coming back to this in Matthew 18, 16, but if he will not hear thee, take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Look, you've started a process. When you go and you tell your brother, you have trespassed against me. You have erred against me. You have offended me. You have mistaken. You have wandered away. You have done something sinful against me. You've started a process that if that brother doesn't make it right there with you, now you're going to bring witnesses. I really wish people would think before they start this process because there are times where people get caught up in emotion. Well, people get caught up in different types of things uh, they take offense to something that they've misread, and it turns into somebody is going to be cast out from among the saints. Now you've started a process. Now, these words are witnessed. Why is that? Verse 17, if you neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. If you neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. You're going to be casting out this person if they won't hear you or the witnesses or the church. Jesus goes on, where, how's this 
get into pity, Brian, you might be wondering. Well, Jesus goes on, verily I say to you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Think about the significance of this. When brethren practice discipline, you are taking somebody and delivering them unto Satan, 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 5. That's how significant this is. So, hey, brother, you have erred against me, starts a process that may result in you delivering this person unto Satan. So verse 19 comes back to the point of two or three witnesses. He says, again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth is touching anything that you shall ask to be done unto them, my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three gather together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So the authority of the witnesses comes into play. From this, pity becomes the discussion. Then came Peter and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? Now remember, we read Luke 17, 3 and 4, where Jesus gave a qualifier that he doesn't give here. He says in verse 22, Jesus said to him, I say unto thee, until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Then he says, therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened to a certain king, which take account of his servants. And began to reckon one was brought in him, which owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded to be sold and his wife and children, all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshiped and saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will repay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgive him of the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence and laid his hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me all that thou owest. His fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went at, cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were sorry, came and told their Lord all that was done. His Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desiredest me. Shouldest not thou have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Here's where pity comes in. We have been shown pity of the Lord. If we do not show it to our brethren, if they transgress against us, then God is not going to show it unto us. You know, remember, you know, so speak ye and so do as they shall be judged by the law of liberty for he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy and mercy rejoice against judgment. James chapter two, verses 12 and 13. Sorry for not giving you the reference ahead of time. Sometimes when I'm on a roll and I'm going off off script a little bit, I forget the references. Uh, but James 2, 12 and 13 is there for us. The same principle there that you read in Matthew 18 and verse 35. If you're not going to show pity, if you're not going to forgive as Christ, as God has forgiven us for Christ's sake, then we're not going to be forgiven in the day of judgment. So as we think about this process, be pitiful. It's talking about our relating to our brethren. Be pitiful to our brethren. What if my brother offends me? I need to be willing to show him pity if I address it or not. I need to have pity. I need to have mercy. I need to have understanding 
because I'm telling the Lord how I want to be judged. I want to remind you, I read Matthew 7, 1 through 5 to you. Verse 2 said, with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured you again. You are setting your own standard before the Lord in the judgment day. Show pity if you want pity to be showed unto you. From pity, it's be courteous, meaning be friendly or be kind to your brethren. Colossians 3.12, put on therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Think about what we see in God, Titus 3 and verse 4. After the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man appeared. Again, think about what, what God did for us through Christ. His kindness gave us the opportunity to be saved. Our friendliness, our kindness ought to contribute to the salvation of our brethren. You know, there's a contrast that I want you to think about. The one chapter book of 3 John starts off talking to Gaius and then goes into Diotrephes. Well, I want you to think about the difference between Gaius and Diotrephes. In 3 John beginning verse 1, the elder excuse me, under the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prosper. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to the strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, and if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentile. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be the fellow helpers to the truth. So Gaius is somebody that brethren who were traveling could depend on. He would be hospitable. He would be loving. He was this man who had reputation for such. On the other hand, Verse 9, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and cast them out of the church. Gaius, receptive to the saints. Diotrephes, not at all. You want to be a Gaius. Then, the final point, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but blessing, knowing that you're called that you should inherit a blessing. Simple point, right? And, and we've talked about this already in our contextual study of 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10 and following. See, so 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, See that none render evil for evil unto any but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. We spent a considerable time studying these principles when we were looking at 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, because Jesus gave us this sinless example when he was reviled, when he was reproached, he didn't respond in, in that way. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He committed himself to him that judges righteously. So we've talked about these points, right? Whose vengeance belong to? It belongs to the Lord. Hebrews 10, 30 and 31. 
For we know him that said, Vengeance belongs unto me, I will recompense, say the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. We bless and curse not. And, and we've covered all that. We've talked about different principles therein. The, the Apostle Paul told the evangelist Timothy to pray for all men. Why? So that he could have a peaceable life. For you to be mindful that God wants everybody to be saved and for you to care about them and pray for God to be long-suffering because God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. This contributes to our mentality of peace. Now, remember a point I made earlier? God is not the author of confusion, but of peace is in all the churches. If we love one another, if we show pity towards one another, if we are friendly and kind towards one another, if we're not vengeful people, this makes for personal peace and it makes for collective peace among the saints. And that ultimately is the goal. We want to be at peace with our brethren. So folks, that's what I've got for you on 1 Peter 3, 8, 9. It's not challenging information-wise, but from what I've experienced, unfortunately, is it is challenging to some people application-wise because some people just do not want to have the brotherly relations that we need to have. Listen, if you want to spend eternity in heaven, you better show God on earth that you can live peaceably with those who are going to be in heaven. If you can't, you won't. Next week, if all goes according to plan and the world stands, 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12, He that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. His lips that they speak no guile, let him eschew evil and do good. Seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears open their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. That would be our goal. Uh, look forward to it and I hope you'll come back on Tuesday. If all goes according to plan, I'll have another podcast up then. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'll say goodbye.